God first built in this earth a garden, a beautiful garden, a garden without sin, a garden that was full of fruit and full of food and full of that which is been given to man for dominion to take care of it. to tend to it, to watch over the animals, to watch over the things of life that God put in there. And then when sin came into that garden, God had to set man aside and put him outside of that garden because had that not happened, he would have eaten from the tree of life and lived eternally in the sin nature. And so we know that Jesus was coming to this earth. When the fullness of time was come, God sent his son to redeem us from being separated from him. But there still remains a garden to be tended to. Many times he, he talks about the things of the garden. He talks about pruning. He talks about taking care of the garden. He talks about, he, he, sometimes he even equates people as trees. Men, example of trees, taking care of trees. But I really want, I really think that the Lord is saying, I want you to understand that when something evil comes into your life, it has to be removed. And those that have been faithful and those that have borne fruit there must be pruning so that you can bear more fruit. And I'm not so sure we always understand what that pruning looks like. But God begins to remove things that should not be there. And that which he is pleased with, he's like, give it to me. Because Father wants to prune that and to cut something so that the greater fruit can come. So what does this look like in our daily life? What has to be removed is that which is going to destroy the fruit. What has to be removed is that which is going to bear more fruit. I was asking God about abiding and what that looked like. And why is it that when we walk, sometimes we're not walking in, in, in the places that we recognize God. Jesus shows up everywhere, but we don't see him. And I, I felt like he was saying, it's like, look, tell my faithful people that I'm pruning right now. Because fruit has got to come. The fruit of the Holy Spirit of God has got to come for what is Jesus going to be doing in this season? So relationships have to be re-put and done right. Sin's got to go. The nature and character of who you are has got to come forth. So we have to peel off and prune and cut off that which is not your real identity.
I know that Jesus is the door, he's the way, and he's the truth, and he's the life. But our daily walk many times becomes something different other than that focus. So therefore we miss him when he's standing right in front of us. We lose our way. And I begin to envision in myself, you know, this is what the Lord has shown me. He says, Sharon, I want you to start, I want you to start talking to me like you're already up there. Like you're up there in heaven and you're dealing straight with me. Instead of down here in all this mess, I've got that figured out. You get up there with me and you start talking with me like you're up there. Because there's a part of you that is up there, but you're not connected with that person. You don't know that part of you yet. That part of you that is already sitting in heaven. So we have to learn how to live in heaven as it is in earth. And we have to be pruned of these things that are not the real me and not the real you so that you can come forth as God created you to be. I've seen the Lord many times just come in and mess things up. It's because there's a different path that needs to be taken. We thought we were supposed to go to Emmaus. We got tired of waiting up there in Jerusalem for this promise. We got tired of tending the field and looking at the tares growing up with the wheat. Every tear in my soul is going to be uprooted when God himself does that. He comes and takes care of the tares. I don't like it either. I don't like the wheat and tares growing together, but there's a greater purpose. There's a harvest that has to come. And when the harvest has come, God removes that which is not supposed to be there. There's, there's an individual harvest, and then there's the harvest. There's the proclamation of the gospel that has to become alive in us. Otherwise, it's not alive. It's, it's, not, it's not alive. It's still dead. We can't let things go. One of the, one of the scriptures that God talks about in the, book, in the book of Revelation to the seven churches, he says, strengthen what remains. He, he doesn't require us to hold everything up that's wrong. Just strengthen what you've got that remains and let go of that which is not supposed to be there. Let him take it. Because otherwise you'll find yourself fighting with God. You won't win. And those, those that have been, have been built to be a leader, you get the hardest stuff. You're, you're sifted harder and more thoroughly than the others. But I felt like the Lord is saying, just because you're being pruned, it does not mean that you're not abiding in the orchard or in the field. Because you don't know what you're going to look like. And he looks like that with joy as we see, as he sees us, that we're beautiful. Because he knows what that pruning is going to do. He knows what that's going to bring forth. And this pruning is dis discipline. It's difficult. It is hard. It is not easy. And it's not supposed to be. Just let him have it. What? Haven't let him have what? What that war in your soul is all about. We can surely recognize that. 
we can surely recognize what that war and that pressure in our soul is all about. Cut it out, Lord. Cut it. Let it, let it just trust him to do what he can only do with it. I really want Jesus to have what he wants out of today. This is the only time we got. I can't relive yesterday. <laughs> you don't have tomorrow. I want him to have what he's looking for today. So I'm just asking Jesus, come find me. Come get me, Lord. My deepest tears of rejoicing come when I recognize what he's brought me out of. My sorrow should not be because I'm encompassed about with the spirit of grief. Somehow making me seem more righteous. The great Holy Spirit once in. And he doesn't want to be kicked out. He doesn't want to be grieved. If we're going to prune and throw something out or allow something to be thrown out, it shouldn't be the Holy God that has called you and made you in his image. And if we're not looking like what is in his image, then just hang on. He'll deal with the tears. If you keep your eyes on him, if you trust Father to cut things out of your life that shouldn't be there, instead of just running and being impatient and trying to find something to fulfill that hole that only he can fulfill. I know we have eyes in our heart. I know our heart can think, our heart can hear, our heart can understand, our heart can know better than the mind can. Because if the mind is not renewed, there's some pruning that needs to be happening. Because the word is alive. It's alive. John 3.16 has come alive to me. And anything that is not in John 3.16 needs to be cut out. And the rest of the word is alive because Jesus is the word and he's alive. So those of you who are agreeing with the Lord in your heart, say, Jesus, just come get me. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what field I've been planted in, but you do. And I just need you. Can we just keep it simple? If we know, again, I'm saying this, I've said this several times. If you know that you are willingly and knowingly doing something that is not right, and it's not bringing you peace, then your heart isn't right with God. And how to fix it? You come to Him and you let Him cut out, you let Him prune that, let Him take away what He wants to take away. He's only going to take something away that's killing you anyway. Let God arise and His enemies be scattered. It just shouldn't be that the army of God is clothed into something or with something that is not God's glory.
clothed in shame and sin and disgusting things and clothed in all this stuff, wearing all these rags, having all these branches that we've grown and maybe even cultivated that need to be cut. Just cut it, clean it up. Holy Spirit, come have your way. Come have your way, Lord. We are so dependent upon you. And I don't think you mind that. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Prune and cut what you want out of my life. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Father, we just come to you. We give you glory and honor for your son, Jesus, and what he's accomplished. We pray, Father, right now that the word would be made flesh and dwell among us in our hearts and our ears and our minds, that it would be tangible, touchable, experiential, to glorify you, that you would be with your people. You would change how we think to be able to con uh, conjure up the thing that you already intended for us to be, not the thing that we've conjured up in our head that we think you are. So, Father, we just bless you. We worship you. We thank you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence, your life, your power. We don't assume anything, Father. We need you. But we also thank you that we bless you because we have you. You are Emmanuel, and you are with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good, good. For those of you who have children and you want to go back to the back, you're welcome to. If you don't want to do that, that's fine too. Um, in case you missed announcements, I'm going to go over one thing quick. Today's our dual service day, so we have a service tonight as well. And then um, you're welcome to come to that, and you're also welcome to stay after church. We have a meal that we're going to eat together um, and just hang out and fellowship and if people need to leave and come back, fine. If you, need to, if you want to stay and hang out, fine. If you guys want to branch off and go different places together and just hang out, that's fine too. But you're welcome, no, no matter what. So I um, wanted to get that out of the way, okay? Good to see everybody. Hey, Emily. How are you? Yeah. I have something on my heart this morning that I've been pondering through this week, and you're going to have to really go with me because I'm going to try to get you guys out so where you're not too late, but those of you who know me know that that's very difficult for me, okay? I don't preach 15-minute sermons. Um, I just, it's really hard to, to say anything worthwhile in that short time frame unless people are really paying attention, and then they take that and they go home and dig it out, and most people don't, so I have to dig it out for you, right? So I'm going to do that. So I want you to go ahead and get ahead of me and turn to John chapter 17, but I want to address you on something this morning. Hey, Becky, how are you? Um, I want to address you guys on something this morning that I believe is very important to how we in interpret God. Everybody in this room has a, has a quote-unquote relationship with God, but that looks different person to person. Part of that's uniqueness. The other part of it's deception. 
all right? But we don't see those things. We don't see the deceptive side of how we form God into an image that he doesn't exist in. You have an idea of God based upon how you view yourself. All right, I'm gonna pause and let that hang for a second. All right? You're created in his image, yes or no? Does God make junk? Then why do you feel like you're always junk? Why? Because you have an improper idea of who God is, of who you are, and how that whole relationship works. And then you try to form a relationship or an intimacy based upon how you view God and how God views you and everything else, and you try to perform in that kind of arena. And it doesn't work. Do you realize that a relationship that's built out of context is not a true relationship, even though you claim it's one? This is why people say, well, I have a relationship with Jesus. Well, so do the devils. It's not a good one, but they have one. Everything has a relationship with God. The right context in which that relationship is interpreted depends upon how we view and see him, which is why Jesus came to heal blind eyes. It was the one miracle that did not happen in the Old Testament that does happen in the New Testament because Jesus came to fix how we see, not so that we could see each other clearly per se, because we can't do that until we see him clearly first. Right? The Old Testament Jerusalem, the rabbinical order, all had an improper idea of who God was. But yet they worshipped him vehemently in that improper idea, much like we do. Right? A relationship with God that's based around sin has no ability to be able to, to have life. And like I said last week, for those of you who are here, if God automatically took all of your problems away, all of them, and made you feel better about yourself and you are now comfortable in your own skin, many of you would have no more relationship left with him at all because your entire relationship with him depends upon everything you've done wrong. What kind of a relationship do I have with my wife when I'm, fo I'm constantly focusing on everything that's wrong in me and why I'm not a good husband to her? How intimate do you think we're going to be if that is my entire focus to the point where I'm even incessantly depressed in her presence because of how uh, unable I am to be what she needs me to be? It may me make me feel better about myself. And you know, the only reason it does is because we're more familiar with self-pity than Holy Spirit. As Christians, you're more familiar, most people are more familiar than how they feel about their sin than how God feels about it. Isn't he the one we sinned against? Doesn't he have the right to feel about it a different way than we do? The problem is, is we're not in unity with him, not because we're not in unity with him, but because we don't receive the unity that he gave us. You with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm going to speak to you this morning, I pray you listen, because it should change how you think about God. If you try to live Christianity out of any other context that I'm going to lay for you this morning, you are going to have a hellish journey, and I bid you good luck. I promise you, any other version of Christianity that you try to live in outside of what I'm going to lay out this morning is going to take you the wrong direction. You with me? You say, well, how can you be that confident of this? Because I'm confident in what the Word of God says how Jesus interpreted it and how he brought us into it. You realize I didn't say how you brought yourself into it. All right, so if we serve God from our interpretation of who he is, right, we're unable to operate in his original design. How many times have you guys ever walk away from the Lord in sin 
And the first thing you don't want to do is come back to him, yet you incessantly want to be back with him. But you don't come back to him based upon an opinion of how you feel like he views you because you view this yourself the same way. You don't have a proper interpretation of how God views you, so you take the view of yourself, you superimpose that upon God, and you automatically assume that that's his view of you as well. That's a pretty messed up relationship. One that we're ultimately confident in. And we shouldn't be. Does this make sense to you? Making a relationship with God out of inaccurate perception does not mean we have an authentic relationship. You know what most people call prayer? You know what most prayer, you know what most people do when they pray and call it prayer? Complain. Just because you're addressing God doesn't mean you're actually praying. Look how Jesus prayed. Did he complain? Do you know why David prayed the way he prayed in those complaining type prayers? Not that they're wrong, but it was because Jesus hadn't come. If he gave you fullness in life and all things, then what do you lack? There's only a few things biblically that you actually lack. So what are you praying for? You're complaining about circumstances if you want God to fix when God sent a circumstance, not to, not to uh, plague you, but to break you of your inaccurate perception of him and how he works in your life. Jesus sends us crosses all the time, then we ask him to take them away, thinking that's what his job is. God exists to keep bad things from happening, Right? That's the majority of the relationship that we have with him. And then when we do that, we begin to judge ourselves. And when we do that, we begin to judge others. And then our whole entire context is just evil in our eyes. All we see is darkness. We see when people don't show up, we don't see why they don't show up. And then we take it selfishly upon ourselves about them or us or this or that. And it has nothing to do with reality. Right? You guys understand what I'm saying? Okay. You with me now? All right. So I've unpacked your mind. Let's unpack his. Right? John chapter 17. Most relationships with God are based upon how we view him instead of how he views us. Get that in your head. Ever feel like not praying because you're unworthy? Because you sinned? You messed up? You had a bad week? You didn't do everything right? You ever feel like not coming to church because you had a crappy existence. So you're, you're basing your relationship on, with Abba based upon how you feel about it instead of how he does. Why is that a problem? Because it's a direct rebellion against the unity that he died to give us. You are separating yourself from him when he died to bring you together. You are undoing the power of the cross in your life when the power of the cross was given to bring you back into his life. The unity of God has been separated by man because you won't receive what he's given you in his spirit and his life and his truth. Right? John chapter 17, anybody know the context of this? We're gonna start in verse 11. This is Jesus's prayer right before he goes to the cross. This is where he prays to God for things concerning future happenings in his current position. He's about to suffer the most horrific thing that anybody's ever suffered. And he's not complaining in his prayer. He says, listen, I'm going to read this, but I also want you to understand that in the context of what I'm about to read, when Jesus prays for something, he gets what he prays for. 
Unlike you and I, where we doubt our prayers and wonder if they're ever going to get answered, and we wonder why they don't get answered, because half of them are usually not of the will of God, which is why they don't get answered, and then it creates this confusion about prayer in the first place. Jesus only prays for and does the things of the Father's heart and will, which is why every time he prayed, he got his prayers answered, and this is no exception. When Jesus prays this in John 17, God heard it, it's being answered, it's still being answered to this day. He says, I am no more in the world, verse 11, but these that are in the world, his disciples, I, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you've given me, that they may be one as we are. You see that? That last part. Keep them through your name, that they may be what? One as we are. One with what? The devil, sin, self-pity, rejection, fear, all the things that you base your relationship with God on? No, one with him. You with me? One with God, which means if Jesus is praying for you to be one with him, how can you be separate in his mind? Well, my sin, you know, your sin sucks. Your sin's terrible, it's horrible, it's everything else. But you know what? The blood is bigger than that. I'm sorry. When you want to come to me with your sin, I'm not going to buy it. You just need the blood. That's why it's there. So why are we so caught up in how bad we are when we have the ultimate solution? And not only do we have the ultimate solution to our sin, we're making our entire relationship with God about the thing that he cured and we don't come into the unity he prayed for us to have. In God's mind, you can never be separated from him. Ever. With me? He says, I don't pray for these alone. He's not I'm just praying for his disciples. He says, I'm praying for those who are all that will believe on me through their word. What? What's he praying? That they all may be one. Why have we been so successful creating a version of Christianity where God's way over there and we're way over here and we're still trying to get his attention? Don't tell me you don't understand what I'm talking about. It's in the back of your mind constantly. Throughout the week, he's... When's the last time you've gone through something and immediately rejoiced because you're going through something hard? Not because you're going through something hard, because you know who's with you. That you can't be separated. But we feel like the circumstances we're going through, that God's not with us in those things. That we're trying to perform well enough or pray hard enough or, or whatever it might be to get him to be, with, to be with us in that situation. He says that they may be one. Father, you're in me, I am in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world might believe that you have sent me. In other words, in Jesus' mindset, the unity that we have with him is the distinction by which the world knows we, he is real. The world needs to know that God is real, and the only way they're gonna know that is by us embracing the unity that he prays for us to have with him, not in a creating of religion where we're separate from him, constantly trying to praise him into our reality instead of just living and existing in it. Is this making sense to you? Okay, just stay with me. It'll make more sense as we go. I and them, verse 23, thou and me, that they may be perfect in one. This is what Jesus is asking for you. Do you know why we created the other type of Christianity? Because that other type of Christianity keeps you church dependent. 
It keeps you pastor dependent. And that's how the machine runs. Should we have pastors? Absolutely. Should we have submission? Yes, but voluntarily because we love. Not because we need somebody to help us walk through life in that sense. We rejoice because we have someone to walk with us through life in that sense. You understand? He says that we may be perfect in one and that the world might know that you have sent me and has loved them and has loved me. The world might know that you, listen, that, (laughs) that you have sent me and you love them. How can the world know your version of Christianity when you're divided against the very God you're trying to give someone else? How, how can that happen? Is this making sense to you? Verse 24, Father, I'm also, I will also, that whom you've given me, they be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory, which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you, and these have known that you've sent me, and I've declared unto them your name, and I will declare it that the love that you've loved me might be in them, and that I might be in them. This is a man that's about, he's still physically present. He's praying that he would be in, in them. How is that possible? Because he's going to send his spirit to make us just like him. Do you realize that you are not a body? Newsflash, you're not a body. This casing, this host, this shell that you think is you is not you. That the real you that Jesus made looks just like him. It's the part of you that's gonna rise and stand before God, which is why you're gonna be justified because you're, when God looks at you, he's not gonna see the you that you see in the mirror. He's gonna see his son. And if you don't know that version of you, then you need to learn and know that version of you. Otherwise, you're going to wake up in the kingdom of heaven, look in the mirror and go, who is that? But the you that you judge yourself by is more sin-based and fault-based and failure-based than it is Jesus-based. Are there consequences to sin? Yes. Are there physical consequences to sin? Yes. Are there certain things that once you cross certain lines, there's certain things you can't go back on and can't do ever again? Absolutely. But that doesn't change who your nature is on the inside. Which being do you want to believe exists inside of you? The sin nature or the life nature of God? You understand? So after this prayer, what I'm saying here is that Jesus prays for us to be one. In other words, after this moment, there's no more separation in his mind. There's no more separation in the mind of God that we are disconnected from him. God now had a porthole through man to be able to come and pray something into existence to bring a reality that was always on God's heart, the restoration of his family. He prayed this just before he was crucified, which means he said that you are one in me and I'm one in you. In other words, when, when he prayed that, Jesus was revealing to us that not only was, were we one with him, but he was one with his father. Why is that important? Because when Jesus hung on the cross, it means father hung on the cross as well. So you guys remember that movie, The Shack, whenever the, the, the woman who played God had the nail holes in, in his hands her hands. It was the first time I'd ever heard anybody accurately say what I'd already believed that God went through that entire experience with Jesus because they were one. 
And somehow we just associate Father as being this righteous, angry dictator, and Jesus is constantly playing, you know, defense. Whoa, whoa, whoa let me grab that lightning bolt out of the air. That one, oof, God, hold on, hold on, let me. That's not how it works. Go to Matthew 19. I'm going to seem like I'm going to turn really hard directions here, but it does. It's all going to connect. You just hope, bear with me, okay? I have to hurry up. Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came to Jesus, tempting him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? All right? You say, well, that was a big change. Where you're, no, it's not. It's all connected. Here's why. Because... These guys are coming to him with a version of, of their idea of who God is and uh, their version of the idea of unity, their version of uh, their idea of commitment. And they're testing Jesus on something that they have no idea about. And he, he says to them, he says, have you not read that he which made them from the beginning and made them male and female? And he said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So you know what we look at marriage like? We look at two hands kind of holding together, kind of interlocked like this, and that's not how God views marriage. God doesn't see two hands. He sees one morph into the other to where it's literally just one hand. It cannot be separated. If it's separated, if it's separated, it is not God that did that, and there is major wounding that happens when it's separated. You have to dissect something and tear something of the body of Christ apart to separate it. Anybody who's ever been divorced understands that. It is not a fun thing, right? Because God never envisioned division, ever. Why? Because when he prayed, he prayed for us to be what? Not, but one. You see yourself as separate from him. He sees yourself, you as being one with him. Well, what about my sin? Well, we'll take care of that. But it doesn't change what he prayed over your life. See, some of you guys, sin is more a definitive identity to you than the, the nature of Jesus. You believe you are your sin. You believe you are your error, your problem, your failures. And you believe that if you can just use religion as a pry bar to pull yourself out of where you're at to get to where you want to be, then God will accept you. No, God already accepts you. The problem is you don't accept yourself because you don't see who you really are. If you have any other version of Christianity you try to build upon, then you're going you're gonna to mess this all up because the foundation is what God did for us, not what we do for him. What we do for him flows out of what he did for us. Right? And he says, a man, verse, verse five, leave his mother and father, shall cleave to his wife, the two become one. Verse six, they're no more two, but they are one. What God has put together, let nobody pull apart. See, now we're thinking, you know, when we read this, we think of earthly marriage, which is actually true. It's, 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 it's true, but that's not where I'm going. Let's look at this now. I'm gonna, hear, I'm gonna give you the newsflash, the context in which to frame the rest of this sermon that I'm talking about here is that Jesus came to marry us. 
We didn't choose him. He chose us, right? In, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an engagement, who pursues who? You with me? If it's done right, if it's done the way it's supposed to be, the, the man pursues the woman. Who is he? He's the groom. He's the husband. We're the wife. Who pursues who? He pursues us, right? And so these guys are coming. Let me finish. He says, he, he says what did, why did Moses then give you a commandment of, of, of writing a divorce to put her away? And he said, because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, God will give you what you want, not because you really want it, but because you're out of alignment with him. And that's the scariest part of God to me ever. This is why I see deceived people following Jesus, claiming to be following the spirit of God. But most of the time what they're hearing is because of the hardness of their heart and God will bless what he doesn't condone. So I don't, I don't believe that. Well, go ask Ishmael when Abraham prayed Oh God, that Ishmael might live before you. And, and guess what? God blessed Ishmael, didn't he? And we're still dealing with the problem today because God blessed Ishmael. God blessed what he didn't even acknowledge. God didn't acknowledge Ishmael. He didn't. Go read in Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, and offer him as a sacrifice before me. God did not acknowledge Ishmael, but he blessed him. And there's things in your life that God does not acknowledge, but you're praying for his blessing on it. And the worst thing that you can get is the blessing of God on something he doesn't acknowledge, like an improper relationship with him that you think is real. Because that's when deception comes, because we think the blessing of God is everything. In fact, our, our current culture still revolves around it, an Old Testament mindset. Deuteronomy 28 you do this and this and this and this and this and I'm going to be blessed and I do this and this and this and this and this and, this and, I'm going to, and I'll be cursed. And all based on your performance and that's not the gospel. You know why I'm blessed? It's not because I can do verses 1 through 14 in Deuteronomy 28. It's because I am in the blood of Jesus as a son of God based on his requirements for me that he fulfilled. Because I'm not good enough. And this outer thing that I'm trying to religiously beautify is not me. The real me is made in his image. And he says, I'm telling you, whoever shall put away his wife, except for it be for fornication and marries another, that person commits adultery. And whoever marries another who is put away commits adultery. Is that on the marital realm? Yes, but it's also on the spiritual realm. In other words, if you go try to make yourself one with something other than him because he's the one that chose you first, you are literally in fornication against God. What does that mean? That means you are loving fear and unbelief and doubt and hate and lust and greed and alcohol and drugs and all those things more than Jesus because he married you, you're married to him, you are one with him and you're making yourself one with something else. That is adultery. Every time you come and I come into a, a reality of unbelief or fear or lust or whatever it might be, we are making ourselves one with something other than what we're really one with. 
which is why the chaos begins to happen. Because when you begin to separate something and try to tear something apart, it causes chaos. And when we make ourselves with one with something other than Jesus, it causes chaos. The one hand begins to be ripped apart and both parties feel the pain. When you fall away from the Lord, you think you're the only one that's suffering. If God suffered in Jesus' reality on the cross, then God suffers in your reality when you walk away from him as well. You make him go through your pain that he doesn't deserve. In other words, you think your sin only harms you. You think you're the only one that feels it. When Jesus made himself one with you, he feels it too. Just like two married people, if one of them's going through something difficult, the other one bears the entire weight of the whole thing, sometimes even helplessly having to go through it because they can't fix the other person and they know it. And they suffer just as much. Yet we claim to love God, but we're dragging him through our sin thinking we're the only one it affects. If you go commit adultery, if you commit fornication, you're bringing Jesus into that bed with you. You go suck on cigarettes and alcohol and weed and marijuana and, and drugs, you're making him do it with you. Because you still see your life as separate from him, like you can do what you want because you think it's okay. The Bible's very clear about that. The Bible says each man does that which is right in his own eyes. Well, congratulations, everybody's their own God. Everybody's their own judge then. Then there is, no, if, if, that's, if that's the reality and, that's, and, and there's no king in Israel, then why are we here? Why are you at church? Listen, you're not gonna be judged on your opinions of what's right and wrong. Doesn't matter what you think about it. Doesn't matter what you think about divorce and remarriage. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It matters what he knows about it because he's the one that married you. He's the one that set the standard. He's the one that made himself one with you. I remember a, a, a guy who I was preaching this sermon a little while back, a few years ago, whatever, and this, this guy was in the service and and he said, you mean to tell me that if I go smoke cigarettes, I'm making Jesus do that with me with the Holy Spirit? I said, absolutely. I said, when God made you alive, what did he put inside of you? Breath, wind. And when you're sucking on that cigarette, what are you putting inside of you? What are you mixing? What he gave you with something else? Did God create you with that dependency? Did you come out of the womb craving those things? needing those things, having to have those things? No. And we're, we're, where's the problem? Is it on God's problem? Is it on God's end? You with me? You understand what I'm saying? See, in other words, what they're asking him, the Pharisees are asking him, is it legal for you, Jesus, to divorce us just because we did wrong? Because that was the reality he was thinking. They were thinking, can I just get rid of this woman I'm tired of? Like, can I just get rid of her? She's done. 
Like there was even arguments in the ancient rabbinical society that, you know, that basically the same modern day rendition is, can I divorce her because she burnt my toast? Any little reason. And they're thinking of the physical practicality and Jesus is here saying, I came to this earth to marry this whore and I'm gonna stay faithful to her no matter how unfaithful she is to me. And you're not gonna get me to divorce her. You. This is what he's saying in this text. Because he's here as the groom pursuing us as the bride and he's not gonna put us away just because of our sin. Why? Because his blood can clean his bride. Make her new. Give her a new reality. But we have a version of Christianity that's just so sin-focused. He's like, you guys have missed the entire point. We have an Old Testament relationship with God under a New Testament order. Performance. And you know who we put as our pastors? Those who can perform the best. We were just talking in home group last week that you realized that if there was a committee, a board of people and you were on that board and somebody came up, there was two resumes handed to you, two resumes for being the pastor of the new church. One of them had said King Saul at the top. The other one said King David. You know which one you'd actually choose based upon the resume alone? Saul committed no moral failures, my friends. In fact, legally, legally, he waited the allotted time that Samuel told him to wait. He didn't do it early. Everybody thinks, oh, he must have gotten patient. No, he, he waited the allotted time. He's, and he still did what even David did. And he actually did what, what you and I are able to do, perform as a king and a priest. But it was his heart. You would choose Saul as your Pastor. Because when the anointing fell on Saul, he prophesied with the prophets. When the anointing falls, oh, we can all get charismatic, can't we? That's not what God looks at. God doesn't care about your performance. Listen, he married you before you could even perform. They're asking this question to the one who made unity itself. And now they're saying, can we divide it just because of sin? Now I'm asking you, can your relationship with God be divided just because of sin? Only if you allow it to be. You know, we're singing that song, I exalt thee, but you know what we really exalt? Sin. I exalt fear. I exalt unbelief. Oh, Lord. Don't tell me that's not how we live and think. How much faith do you have right after you sin? That's the test. How much do you believe in the power of the blood immediately after you do wrong? I know people that commit sin and it takes them weeks just to crawl back into church. Okay, that's where your focus is. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart be also. 
If your treasure is yourself and your performance and how you feel about yourself, then that's exactly what you're going to bow to. You with me? You guys are making me go too long. Stop it, all right? <clears throat> so this guy's given up his life for a bride that is a harlot. Verse five, Jesus left his father and his mother and cleaved to his bride. He left heaven. He left all of the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize that he is forever a human being now? He is a human being for forever. Beforehand, he wasn't a human being. Now he is. He forever encapsulated himself into a six-foot male or however tall he was for eternity past and eternity present. He become like us eternally so we could become like him eternally. Does this make sense to you? He had to become like us to be made one with us. Right? Flesh. It says the two shall become one flesh. This is why Jesus coming is so powerful because this is why I can't stand religious spirits because religious spirits aren't always this stuffy insert your doctrine of what you think religion is type deal. What, what I hate about the religious spirit is that oftentimes it looks more like this. Well, I just follow the spirit, brother. The spirit takes on flesh. And if your flesh doesn't look like the word of God, I don't care what thing you're hearing. You understand what I'm saying? The word became flesh. Jesus became like us in body so we could be like him in spirit. He had to make us one with him in flesh. And when we become one with him in spirit, then what happens is, is that the thing that we try to perform in religiously before to get our flesh to overcome and, and, and obey is now the thing that happens by reaction because it's coming from the inside out. This makes sense. There are no longer two, verse six, but one flesh, right? Here's the rebuke. We're the ones that created the division, not him. In this New Testament reality, we're the ones that create division in our relationship with him and I, him and us, not, not him. He doesn't do it. We create the division. We create it by the idea that we pray that God is out there, that we're this horrible person. God's waiting us for, become, you know, that we, he's waiting for us to come to a place where we can finally be made whole. Do you realize that the, the, the goal of Christianity is not where you're going, it's who you're walking with while you're getting there? It's not where you're going to end up. In fact, I say this all the time in our home groups, but you've got to understand, you've created an idea of you that doesn't exist. You created an idea of you that somewhere out in the future, that if you can just do this good enough and be good enough and this and that, that I'll get to that person and I'll finally be that person and that person doesn't exist. You know why? Because you created it, God didn't. The God that created the real you looks like Jesus. Right now. It may be young, it may be a baby, it may be infantile, but it looks like him. Do you need to grow? Absolutely. That's another sermon. But when he makes something, he makes it look like himself. But we're chasing something we've made it to look like. I want to look like this. I want to feel like this. Why? Because basically you don't love yourself as much as you love God. You're not comfortable in your own skin. You're trying to use a religion to get yourself there. It's not going to work. Stop trying to fix yourself. It's not your job. You know what your job is? To love him with all your heart. That's your job. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. You do that, you're good. 
You'll find out in doing that though, you can't love God without God because God is love. God's not, love is not an attribute, it's a person. And you're gonna figure out, well, I gotta hang out with this guy a little bit more because I don't have what I, what, wait a minute, I do have because he's in me. That's how the transition works. You go from these Old Testament mindsets and these things, well, I don't have, and then all of a sudden your spirit says, no, you have everything for life and godliness. Well, why don't I see it? Because you're supposed to walk by faith, dummy. Remember? Not by what you see. If you go by what you see, you're always going to be depressed. In yourself and someone else, you're always going to be depressed. I don't like what I see in the mirror, but God loves what he sees in my mirror. You with me? So it doesn't matter what wrong she's done. He's here to save her. He's here to be one with her. He's here to marry her. It's not, he's not here to come down and judge her and condemn her. How many times, you know, Jesus didn't address, in fact, listen, there's so many times in the Bible where Jesus meets people who are involved in sin and he doesn't bring it up. You know why? Because their conscience is doing that good enough for them. Amen. It's the Holy Spirit's job of convict of sin of righteousness and judgment. And they come before him and he goes, go and sin no more. It's the only time he addressed it. He didn't say, you remember all this stuff you did in the past? You remember all that? Just stop. He just said, stop doing it. You're good. You're with me now. Stop doing it. Just stop. You know what he got on his disciples more than sin for? It was unbelief. Unbelief. Why? Because unbelief keeps God from being God to you. Because God can only be God to you is if you allow him to by faith. In other words, he's a gentleman. He's not gonna force himself on you because he's a groom. He's pursuing you. He's not dictating you. That's what makes your surrender so valuable because it's voluntary. It's not out of fear. It's out of love. You understand this? Okay. Really quick, Matthew 25. Then the king, verse 34, shall say unto them on his right hand, come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the, before the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And the righteous will say to him, Lord, when will we see you hungry and fed you and thirsty and gave you to drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in or naked or clothed you? And, he, and when we saw you sick or in prison or came to you, when did all these things happen? In verse 40, the king shall answer and say to them, verily I say unto you as much as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Why? Because he is so one with us that when we create unity and love and service to someone else, we're doing it to father himself. He's one with us, not separate from us. You want to love God? Love your neighbor. That's why it's involved in that first commandment. You want to bless God? Bless your neighbor. Why? Because your neighbor is one with God, but they don't act like it. Maybe they will. Maybe they will through the love that you show them. Love isn't condoning their sin, patting them on the back. It's going to tell them it's going to be okay and they can keep living like they're living. No. But love is being there for them. Love sometimes is letting them go for a while until that sin beats the snot out of them. They come crawling back and you're like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. That was a pretty sucky ride, wasn't it? Next time, do it with us.
You understand this? Your mouth, your hands, your feet, they're all his. He's one with you. This is why, don't you know your your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? This is why New Testament, New Testament, guys, overeating and overdrinking is a sin. You know why? Because it's, he's one with you. You're making God do something he wouldn't do himself. Forget losing weight because you want to feel better about yourself. Maybe you lose a little bit of weight because that's God's body you're living in. And I'm not saying you have to look like some cover girl magazine. God doesn't care about that either. But everybody should be making steps every day to say, Lord, you're one with me. And I don't want to do anything that you don't want to do. So help me. And if you fall, say thank you that I'm still perfect in your son. And nothing can take that away from me. See, don't define yourself by your mistakes because God doesn't. Now, if you die in your mistakes, then eternally he will define you as, as by your mistakes because you didn't repent. But if you repent here and now and you get these things straight and you start thinking differently about God, you begin to let God use your mindset and your heart and your body and your life, then all of a sudden when you die in that righteousness, it's not your righteousness. You died in his righteousness and therefore you're just like Jesus. Right? Have you guys ever like been, whether you've been married or not, right? You've walked into a room and somebody comes in and they bam, slam the door. You know, and you're just like, oh, shoot. I mean, you know, instantly you feel it, right? Especially if it's a spouse. You're like, ooh, oh my goodness. I better, I'm gonna find the doghouse before I'm sitting there. <laughs> right? Why? Because you're one with that person and you're picking up on that thing that they're involved in. You feel it, Right? You can even feel it sometimes when you're not one with somebody in marriage. Why? Because we're all baptized into one body. That's why as a pastor, I suffer when everybody else suffers. People think I'm distant or whatever it might be, you know, avoiding them or whatever. I'm, I'm suffering in their sin. I'm on my face weeping and crying over their sin. And they're, they're probably not weeping and crying over the fact that I'm weeping and crying about it. They're probably not weeping and crying and praying for me, but I'm weeping and crying and praying for them because I feel it because we're one body, baptized into one body. You, you understand what I'm saying? Do you, you find it odd that couples can finish each other's sentences? No, because they're one. Do you know what? I finish God's sentences. My Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2 or 3 that I have the mind of Christ. Right? The Bible says as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If I think with the mind of Christ, so am I. I'm not God, but I'm made in his image. I'm made into the image of Jesus. I'm just like Jesus. Still working on that walking it out part, but I'm just like him. Understand me? Another thing about marriage, my wife doesn't ask me for the things that we hold in common. She doesn't call me and be like, hey, can I get gas for the car? Hey, I need to get the kids something to eat. Can, you, can, can I use the car today? Can I have some cash? She doesn't do that. Do you do that? No. Why? Because what is the husband's is yours. Legally, true or not. 
then why are you praying for things that God's already given you? Well, Lord, I need peace. He's like, stop it. You created the chaos. You have my peace. It's just not on the outside. You're looking the wrong way, honey. You, you understand what I'm saying? You're praying for things. We, my wife doesn't ask me for things we hold in common. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is a down payment to your inheritance. You inherit all things with him. You become a joint heir. You know what joint heir means? He receives the same thing he does. What does he receive? Everything. What do you receive? The same thing. If you're good enough, right? If you fast enough, pray enough, memorize enough, serve enough, all that kind of stuff. And then if you're gonna do that, go be a Muslim. That's how they live their life. 51%, 49% bad, you're good. Uh Uh-oh, 52% bad, sorry. You're screwed for eternity. Why are we living our lives like that? Should you be holy? Yes, but holiness comes from unity. Not performance. Holiness becomes from unity, from being one with God. God is holy and we're one with him. So therefore, when we tap into that, we wanna be holy. When we're not, he works those things out of us as we come to him. Right? Acts chapter nine. But Saul, still burning with desire to put to death the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, made a request for letters from him with the synagogue of Damascus, so that there any of the way there, men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Verse three, and while he was journeying, he came near Damascus, and suddenly he saw a light from heaven shining all around him. Verse four, he went down to the earth, a voice came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you attacking me so cruelly? And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you're attacking. Now, let me ask you this. Was Jesus the one he was attacking? Yes and no. You understand what I'm saying here? See, Jesus looked at Saul and said, you're hurting me. You're not hurting the people. What you're doing to them, you're doing to me. When it was said of Saul that, that before he came Paul that he would literally cut babies out of believers, women's stomachs and whack their head against a tree. This is why he says, I'm the least of all saints. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not worthy of this grace, but this grace has been bestowed upon me. Because Jesus came to him and said, what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. Listen, how you treat me as your pastor, how I treat you, how you treat each other is how you're treating God. How you treat your wife, your husband. You don't have the right to do what you wanna do. You have the right to treat others the way you would treat Jesus himself if he were sitting at your, in your, in your, at your table. But I disagree. Well, you're not God. So therefore your opinion is a moot point. This is scripture, right? You understand what I'm saying? We build our relationship with others and God and Bible and church and theology based upon our opinions of scripture instead of Jesus being scripture. How he lived and acted is the interpretation, not your opinion of it. Hermeneutics are useless without the flesh and bone of Jesus. With me? My goodness. You're attacking me, you're attacking my people. If you hate me, 
you hate them. If you hate them, you hate me. If you steal from them, you steal from him. Steal from your neighbor, you steal from Jesus. You're not getting away from it. Right? Ephesians 5, 28. So men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. Does Jesus love us? Are we his wife? Jesus loves himself. Doesn't he? How come you don't love yourself? You know why you don't love yourself? Because your context is how much of a sinner you are. Self-hate thrives in in a fragmented identity. Am I changing how you're thinking here at all? Or should I just quit? We're, we're gonna be done here in a minute anyway. You guys can eat. There's food back there. You'll be happy in a minute. You'll be done when I'm talking. You'll be glad. No man hates his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it even as the Lord does the church. Are you one with Jesus? Are you his flesh? So then who's nourishing and cherishing you? Yes, just as Christ does the church. See, he's trying to nourish and cherish you and you're trying to separate and divide it by telling him about all the bad things about yourself. You already, he already knows those things. And he still said, well, you married me anyway. Yes? yes? We are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bone. Verse 30, I mean, how, 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 can you, how can you get beyond that? How can you still think you're separated from him because of what you do that's wrong? You know why that's dangerous? Because whenever you finally do something that's right, you're gonna think it's you. For this cause, right? Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul makes it very specific here when he's dealing with earthly marriage. He says, this is a symbol of Jesus and us. Marrying us, yes? Oh my goodness. We are the connected tissue of God and the earth. You are his earthly body. You're not a robot he's using. You are his earthly body. You aren't separated from him. You are his earthly body. You are his flesh and bone in the earth. His, not separate from him. You are that one hand. You are the representation of God in the earth. What's scary to me is that he doesn't come and make us all repent because we're totally ruining his name. but he lets us abuse his own, he's so one with us, he's so not gonna leave us that he even lets us abuse his name and his character by how we live and he still fights for us. Same way God made the church, he made Eve. He took us out of the side of Jesus Christ on that cross. And that new blood flowed into new ground creating a new woman. You and me.
Did you understand it, 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 in many Eastern cultures that, 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 that the engagement is the marriage? We're one of the only cultures where the marriage isn't legal until the final day of the exchange of vows. But in the Old Testament idea, there, there would be a man would pursue a woman and pursue his family, and he'd come with a glass of wine when he finally got the courage to ask her to marry him, and he would offer her that cup. And if she took it, and if she drank it, she was saying, yes, I'm fully drinking of your life. And I accept it, and I'm bringing it into me. And it's gonna be a part of who I am. If she refused the cup, she was saying no. When Jesus was about to die, he took his disciples up to an upper room, and he sat them around. If I can get the worship team to come up. He sat them around a table, and he took a cup and he said, take, drink. You guys don't read the story this way, but these guys, these 11 men were literally sitting there kind of almost in awe because they knew exactly what he was doing. This is not something they did every week. This is not something they did all the time. They, it would be like him coming back today and coming to the front of this church and getting down on one knee and pulling out a ring out of his pocket and looking you straight in the face and saying, will you be mine? When he said, when he took that cup and he passed it around and he said, take and drink, they knew what he was saying. Will you marry me? Will you be one with me? Will you accept the unity that I'm about to die to give you? And he said, drink what? All of it. In other words, I'm not holding anything back from my life from you. You have the right to drink the entire cup. You don't have to hold back. I want you to have all of it. There's not a part of it, not a piece of it. I'm not offering just something small to you. I'm offering you everything. And Paul says, you know, how can, how can you drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils at the same time? What he's saying is, is how can you be married to hell and married to God at the same time? What he's saying is, is how can you make covenant with hell and covenant with God at the same time? How can you marry and be faithful in fidelity to, to hell and to Jesus at the same time? How can you do that? You can't. You can't be married to two people at the same time. But that's what we've, that's what we've made a business out of. Right? He took the cup and gave thanks, gave it to them, said, drink all of it. Some of you have been away from the Lord in your mind. Some of you have been away from the Lord in your heart. Some of you have been away from the Lord in your body. You've done things that you know are wrong. Some of you have just been thinking wrong. Some of, the, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I have been so guilty of all of everything he's saying. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to come forward. And there's these little communion cups up here on each speaker. And I want you to decide how much he's worth to you. And I want you to decide whether you've been living in true covenant with him or whether you've made an adulterous affair with fear, unbelief, doubt. I don't care what it is, immoral, semi-moral, religious, Mindsets have to be repented of. Does that make sense to you? So don't wait. We're not going to drag this out. If you need to come, come now. If you don't, that's between you and the Lord.
And I just want you to come before the Lord. I just want you to say, Father, I am choosing you and I ask you to forgive me because there is no separation. Just find a place up here and kneel down or... Just close your eyes and just you and him, just you and him. But see, he made, he offered himself in oneness with you. You're not separate. And if you've had that relationship with him where you're out, he's out there and you're over here and you're, you're not walking with him the way he died to give you the unity. He doesn't want to see you suffer in sin. If you have to suffer, he wants you to suffer with him for righteousness. So right now, I just declare over you the love of God. I declare over you the unity of God, the peace of God, the love of God. I declare over you the matrimony of heaven that you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be the bride of Jesus Christ, that he came and looked you square in the eyes and fell in love with you and came to offer himself to you fully. Will you receive him? To love him as much as he loves you. To repent of your mindset, to change how you viewed him. And if there's something that he's asking from you right now, just give it up. Just walk away from it because it's not worth it. God didn't create you with anxiety. God didn't create you with all these things that you need to medicate yourselves with. God created you to live in peace and harmony with him. He is your resource. He's your husband. Father, I just pray that you would release them as they take the bread and the cup right now. Father, I pray that you release them. Holy Spirit, convict them of truth. Convict them of sin. Father, I pray that you would release them from their sin. God, that you would begin to be merciful to them. Lord, that you would begin to heal their heart and as they begin to lay their, their trash on the, idol, on, on the altar of God that they see who you, who you made them to be. They don't see themselves as yesterday or, or past failures, but they would see you, Jesus, that you would heal their eyes. thank you for your son Jesus such a great sacrifice to bring us into the body of Christ to make us one we, that you chose us such an overwhelming powerful thought we just pray that that thought gets deepened in every person here by the power of the Holy Spirit through their week that Lord that you're not asking for performance you're just asking for them to love you and for their surrender to that love and then you will accomplish great things in their heart and their mind we bless you, Father. We thank you for your grace that we do not deserve, but you lavishly bestow upon us. Let that grace come to a transition of our life, 
resulting in us living, breathing, and moving in the power of your son, Jesus, in this earth. We bless your children. We bless your sons and daughters. Father, we pray that our hearts and our lives will be aligned with you. That we would continue this mindset of repentance of how we view you. And because we're holy, we lay down these things that easily beset us. Because we're righteous in your son, we lay down these things that displease your heart. And as we fall more in love with you, we will release more and more of the love of the world. We praise you, we love you, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you guys, if you're not involved in home groups, if you're interested in that, please come. There's so much richness and depth and word and relationship that just comes. God's really been moving in our home groups. And um, you're welcome to come. Tomorrow's going to be at um, Tyler and Rebecca's at 501 South Kelly here in Harrison. And then... um, You're welcome to stay with us and eat. If you don't have time to do that, we understand, but we would love to hang out with you, eat with you, fellowship with you. And if you want to come back for for tonight, tonight will probably be more of a worship spontaneous night, but you're welcome to come back this evening. We'll start at six o'clock. Be blessed.